Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy to assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. This is The Guardian. I'm Laura Murphy-Oates, coming to you from Gadigal Land, and this is the full story. The era of global warming has ended. The era of global boiling has arrived. In 2023, climate change entered a new era. The level of fossil fuel profits and climate inaction is unacceptable. Leaders must lead. No more hesitancy. No more waiting for the others to move first. There is simply no more time for that. In the final weeks of this year, world leaders came together at COP28. Hearing no objection, it is so decided. And agreed on a deal that some have described as historic and others merely incremental. Back home, the Albanese government pursued a series of climate and environment reforms this year, all while remaining wedded to coal and gas. And this was not lost on Australia's growing climate protest movement. Tensions have boiled over in the city. Climate protesters targeting the National Australia Bank. protesters have descended on the world's busiest coal port in what they're calling the largest act of civil disobedience in Australian history. A price they're willing to pay. Sir, was it worth getting arrested today? Absolutely. Anything for the future? Today, environment and climate editor Adam Morton on the biggest stories of the year and why Australia remains a country at odds with itself on climate. It's Thursday, the 21st of December. So, Adam, we are here to talk about the biggest environment stories of the year, and I think the logical place to start is COP28 in Dubai, which you have just returned from. Welcome back. Thank you. So this COP saw a deal reached that some have described as historic and others merely incremental reform. What exactly happened at this COP? So, look, COPs are crazy uh, beasts. There was, like, up to 100,000 people there with a range of motivations for a range of reasons, And interpreting them often takes time. And I think how you interpret this COP, like most of them, depends a bit on your expectations going in. Mm. The big step forward that is being hailed by some as historic is that nearly 200 countries, for the first time, acknowledge that fossil fuels are the climate problem. The need to move away from fossil fuels was included in the agreement. That's never happened before, which seems bizarre, right? Because clearly we've been talking about this for a while. The final text did not back a very strong call from more than 100 countries, about 130 countries. They wanted different sorts of caveats in there, but they supported language that said we need to phase out fossil fuels in some way. Mm. That didn't get there. Not everyone supported that. 
Saudi Arabia and the other members of the OPEC oil cartel were the most obvious. There were other big countries that were probably really quite happy with that not being there that could hide in the shadows. It's a consensus process. So if you haven't got everybody, you don't get them on board. So that happened. And then the, the language they landed on instead was that call on countries to contribute to transitioning away from fossil fuels in energy systems in a just, orderly and equitable manner, accelerating action in this critical decade so as to achieve net zero by 2050 in keeping with the science. What does that mean? It's it's not we're ending fossil fuels, it's just a think about moving away from fossil fuels sometime. Yes. Well, I mean, that's the problem, right? It's not very specific. The good bit about it is everybody has agreed that we need to move away from fossil fuels and no previous agreement at a UN COP has included oil and gas. There has been talk of phasing down unabated coal, but oil and gas haven't been included. So that's a step forward. Mm. Unfortunately, on the downside, there's a whole bunch of loopholes in the text, which makes it a bit of a choose-your-own-adventure for countries that want to interpret in different ways. And this point was made by Anne Rasmussen, a representative from Samoa, who was the lead negotiator for a group of small island states, small island countries, in the final plenary. It seems that you just gaveled the decisions and the small island developing states were not in the room. Her view, and that of a lot of other developing and vulnerable countries, is that the process is failing them. We have made an incremental advancement over business as usual, when what we really needed is an exponential step change in our actions and support. We see a litany of loopholes. It doesn't deliver on a subsidy phase-out, and it doesn't advance us beyond the status quo. Who gets off particularly easy with this deal? Well, there are get-out clauses for polluters who don't want to follow through. As we said, no clear obligation or timetable for transitioning away. We also know that not everyone will act on it. Saudi Arabia, massive oil producer, has already said it doesn't see any need to change its plans off the back of this. Russia is a huge fossil fuel producer. There's no suggestion it's changing direction. The US talks about changing direction and is doing some good things, but it also just set a new record for oil and gas extraction in one year while at the same time moving towards more renewable energy. Mm. Adam, the UN has issued a stark public warning that the world is on track for what they call a hellish three degrees of global heating. Does this agreement meet the urgency of this moment and and of this year? No, no, it doesn't. Analysts have, have broadly said that whether we consider the fossil fuel mention as historic or a landmark, it is a step forward. And there's other good things in the deal, like tripling of renewable energy by 2030, doubling the rate of improvement of energy efficiency by 2030 globally. If those things are achieved, that will be really significant. One of the ways to think about COP is less about the letter of what the text says and about the signal it sends. There are signals here in this agreement to big institutional investors with trillions of dollars that they're looking to spend, and they want advice on the timing and the direction for that spending. Well, this says more clean solutions transitioning away from fossil fuels. This is a good thing, but there is not the urgency that's required to live up to what the ultimate goal of this is, which is to keep limiting global heating to 1.5 degrees above pre-industrial levels within reach. Mm. At the moment, you'd be a very optimistic person to say that that seems likely. So, Adam, as we heard in Guardian Australia's podcast series, Australia versus the Climate, Australia over many decades played a a pretty key role in delaying global action 
on climate at some of these COPs. But we now have a Labor government who wants to change that reputation. What did the COP tell us about Australia's new position or repositioning on climate? I think it reinforced the idea that there's really now two stories on Australia on climate, depending on how you want to look at it, and both have truth to them. Chris Bowen, the climate change minister, led Australia's delegation in Dubai at COP28 and was, I think, pretty widely seen to be a positive force there. This COP is a turning point, not an end point, but a turning point, recognising the world has left it too late to stop climate change in its tracks that we need to adapt as well as mitigate. It's a big thing. So again, it was um, a delight to work with so many countries across the board, both as chair of the umbrella group of negotiating countries, but more broadly with our friends in the EU and in the Pacific. And they had some positive interactions to try and get a better result, despite mixed views within that group. He spoke up for the Pacific at times when the Pacific felt like their voice needed to be heard. And, you know, he emphasised the things that the government has done since they've come in. And, you know, they have introduced some policies to start to change some the direction the country's going in to some extent. But on the other hand, we are the world's third biggest fossil fuel exporter. There's a huge amount of gas projects in particular that are up for approval from the federal government and could add billions of tonnes of emissions to the atmosphere over the decades ahead. And we're not really sure yet what the path is for Australia to go from being a massive fossil fuel exporter to a renewable energy superpower exporting clean energy, which is what the government says the goal is. Next, how Australia's love affair with gas clashed against our lofty climate goals in 2023. Adam, before the break, you described an Australia that's at odds with itself on climate. And one of the most contradictory parts of our energy policy is our ongoing commitment to gas, which includes a massive proposed expansion in the Northern Territory that some have called a top-end carbon bomb. What did we learn about these plans in 2023? So the top-end carbon bomb sort of centres around Beetaloo Basin, which is a massive untapped gas reservoir, 500 kilometres south of Darwin. And this has been talked about for years. It's a potential source of gas for Australia and for export for its trading partners. To sort of real world this, what we're talking about is gas companies being allowed to frack in the Beetaloo Basin, which is a highly controversial process by which gas is extracted from deep underground, would then be taken up to near Darwin where it'd be processed and most of it would be exported to Asia as liquefied natural gas. It is central to the Northern Territory government's expansion plans. They are very strong on wanting to develop this and sort of don't acknowledge the potential climate impact of this development. Mm. There have been a range of estimates about its potential climate impact. Reputex, the energy consultancy, did one of them. Its analysis suggests that if it went to full production, it could lead to 1.4 billion tonnes of emissions globally. As part of the gas expansion in the Northern Territory, the Albanese government has committed $1.5 billion to something called the Middle Arm Sustainable Development Precinct. 
our colleague Lisa Cox took a closer look at this earlier this year. What did she find? It's an industrial precinct outside Darwin. It has been described by both the Albanese government and the Northern Territory government as a sustainable development, focusing on things like green hydrogen, decarbonisation, sustainability. These words get thrown around a lot. Mm. Specifically, the government knew, Lisa has shown, that the project was seen as a key enabler for the export of gas from the Beetaloo Basin. Mm. And you can call it sustainable if you like, but that fact doesn't change. Now, there's a Senate inquiry looking into the Middle Arm Precinct, which reports back in the first half of next year. I mean, I think it's worth saying that there may be good grounds for industrial development at Middle Arm, but if it's really about sustainability and decarbonisation, then we'd want to see the projects that were being built there more heavily geared in that direction rather than it being a smaller part of the answer. Mm. So, Adam, the Northern Territory isn't alone here in their plans for gas expansion. There's a similar massive expansion planned in Western Australia with one project, Woodside Scarborough Development, also sometimes described as a carbon bomb in the making. How are state, territory and federal governments justifying this? I mean, the short version is that if we don't supply it, somebody else will, so why would we just stop? Mm. Which sounds really opportunistic. When said like that, often called the drug dealer's defense. We've right, the drug it dealer's defense. That's right. You know, they're going to get drugs anyway, so we might as well make the cash from it. Mm. The practical reality is that if we just stopped our exports overnight, Japan, South Korea, China, to the extent it's taking this from us and other countries, probably would continue to get gas from elsewhere. It's there's not like there's no truth to this, but I think a reasonable response and the sort of response the government's increasingly hearing is that that's not a case for unchecked development. Now, Chris Bowen is emphasising the need to make this change and work with our trading partners and says, if they know we're a reliable supplier of energy, we're more likely to be able to influence that change. Not everybody in federal, state and territory government speaks the same way. And I guess the real question is, how are we going to deal with this? How are government's going to handle these relationships to try and make this change? So Adam, as you mentioned, we have this kind of complicated policy where we are exporting a lot of gas, but we're also pursuing significant domestic reforms when it comes to climate and environment. What were some of the really big steps forward that the Albanese government made this year? I think the most significant from a climate point of view was an announcement shortly before COP that the government would underwrite a massive expansion of renewable energy and it gives certainty to investors looking for some more confidence about why they can invest. Unfortunately, this year, we've seen a massive drop-off in new investment commitments. And this is something the government's been warned about since it's been in power, really, or it's certainly all this year. Mm. It's taken a while to respond, but its response has been warmly received by the energy industry, climate campaigners, analysts who are saying something really needs to be done here because we're going to lose a huge amount of coal over the next decade. And we're going to be in real strife just from a reliability point of view if we're not certain that there's replacement coming in. Mm. Right. So big investment in renewables. What else? So the safeguard mechanism promises to put a limit on industrial emissions. Now, across the board, emissions are going to stop rising if this does its job. We probably need to do more to reduce them more rapidly. Mm. But getting that through was a significant win for the government and it did it in a deal with the Greens and the crossbench. 
So, Adam, that's the two big pieces of climate legislation from the past year. But there's also been some big changes to protections for the environment. For example, the federal government is setting up a nature repair market to encourage private investment to protect nature. But I want to focus mostly on native forest logging. Both Victoria and Western Australia have announced they're ending native forest logging by next year. How significant is that? Oh, look, it's historic, genuinely historic in this case. They're they're massive changes. They're going to be difficult changes to oversee politically, and there'll be some pain on the ground because it will affect some regional communities. We have seen, particularly in Victoria, a string of evidence of the devastating impact, combined impact of bushfires, where they've had terrible bushfires over a number of years, and then logging coming in on top of that and just exacerbating the environmental damage. And there was so much court action over it that they were kind of forced to act in the end. So if they are introduced as promised, they'll be really significant changes and it will turn increased attention onto the other two main states which don't have plans at this stage to end native forest logging, which are New South Wales and Tasmania. I expect both will be the focus of a lot of attention next year. We've also seen climate change really hit hard, especially for First Nation communities and Pacific communities in the the north of our region. Can you tell me a bit about that? Yeah. So, I mean, I think the most remarkable thing the government's done here was Anthony Albanese announcing that he'd done a deal with the government of Tuvalu, tiny, low-lying atoll nation in the Pacific that involves Australia saying that it would offer up to 280 people residency a year as climate refugees, if and as required. That was a surprising and Mm. significant announcement, and there are other elements to it. I think that it quite reasonably raised the question of, I mean, Australia can't stop the climate crisis in its own right, but while we still don't have serious plans to phase out our fossil fuel exports, it sort of just shines the spotlight on that as well. Why are we not doing more to reduce the global problem? There's also, like, we're seeing an increasing number of court cases over climate change, and both aimed at governments and corporations. Right. One of the most significant cases against the federal government has been brought by Torres Strait Islander traditional owners. Tell me about that. There were hearings on country in the Torres Strait, in Cairns and in Melbourne. Two men who brought the case alleged the government has failed to protect Torres Strait Islands. Here's what one of the men who brought the case, Uncle Popeye, said to the ABC about it. We're here suffering to call upon government saying that we need an help. We don't, we don't want to be a climate change refugees. They're on the front line of climate change mm. and have likened rising sea levels and climate harms to colonisation. We will see a result in that case, presumably in the first half of next year, and I think it's very much one to watch. But more broadly, we're going to see more and more court cases brought about the government's responsibility to live up to what it says it is doing on climate change, which is doing its best to limit heating to within 1.5 degrees when all of its policies at this stage do not add add up to that. And we know beyond that, things get pretty nasty. And I suppose the thing that unites these two stories, Tuvalu and Torres Strait, is it's our region's climate refugees. We're seeing the beginning of that march, of that conflict playing out, really. That's right. This is going to be a, a significant issue for decades to come. So, Adam, that's a lot of the climate stories and environment stories from 2023, but obviously not all of them. We can never cover it in one episode. I want to look forward to 2024. What are some of the really 
big trends, the big developments and some of the stories you're already following for next year? How long you got? (laughs) Um, There's quite a few, but quickly. So fossil fuel expansion for export is going to remain in the spotlight for obvious reasons. Woodside and Santos are the big two gas companies planning a lot of expansions. They're now talking about a potential merger, which itself could have massive ramifications. I think we can expect direct action protests that we've seen this year to continue and accelerate over time if there isn't a clearer story about how Australia is going to move away from this. So huge story in 2024. Mm. The rollout of renewable energy, that is facing some really significant social license challenges, getting support and approval on the ground for both the um, solar and wind farms, but also the huge amount of transmission lines that will need to be built to connect them. We've seen some stories about concern in the regions. There's been some pushback. And I think how that's managed is going to be by both the industry and governments is going to be a huge deal. And environmental law reform, I'm sort of bearing that in the list. Some would say that's certainly as big a question as any of the others. The government's promised to either massively reform or potentially replace national environment laws. They are failing. We have huge amounts of evidence to say that. How they manage that and what they come up with is going to be a massive story in 2024. It's an enormous slate of things to be reporting on next year. And Adam, I should mention that I won't be doing it with you. This is my last interview for Full Story that I'm going to be doing on the on the podcast. But I'm looking forward to following along as a reader and a listener next year to all your amazing environment reporting. So thank you. Can I say on behalf of everyone at Guardian Australia and all the listeners what a joy it's been to work with you and be able to listen to you all these years. We're going to miss you. That was Adam Morton, Climate and Environment Editor at Guardian Australia. If you're interested in learning more about The Guardian's investigation into the gas expansion in the Northern Territory, do check out our episode from earlier this year titled The Albanese Government and the Top End Carbon Bomb. You can also check out the whole series at the Top End Carbon Bomb at theguardian.com. If you liked this episode, don't forget to subscribe or follow Full Story wherever you listen to podcasts. You can also leave a review. This episode was produced by Karishma Lusria, sound design and mixing by James Milsom. As we mentioned in this episode, this was my last interview for Full Story, but you will be hearing my voice over the coming weeks during our summer series. But goodbye for now. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.